Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello there, everybody. I'm Neil Gaiman. I first discovered Rochester's poetry as a small boy. I'd heard the Here Lies Our Sovereign Lord, the King, whose word no man relies on. He never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one. And that, of course, was Rochester. What I didn't know was there were lots of other wonderful Rochester poems. And that had to wait until I picked up in a dusty old secondhand bookshop in, I think, Minneapolis, a biography of Rochester, and I fell in love. People who read biographies of Rochester, you start by going, no, this, this can't be, jo-. no, he can't really. And then you go, my gosh, he did. And then you start reading the poetry and you realize how good it is. And I love Rochester's poetry. I also love Betwixt the Sheets, and I love it because I learn something new with every podcast about history and about people and about the intersection of the two. Okay, uh, so, <clears throat> Kate Lister, I understand you want me to do your fair dues warning. Yes, I do. This is a very important part of the show because this is where we give people fair dues, fair dues that this is going to be quite rude and quite naughty. Yeah. Like say, hello, lovely betwixters. Hello, my lovely betwixters. This is not Dr. Kate Lister, eminent podcasty academic person. That's how you start. And then tell them that we're going to be covering a lot of indecent material because we're talking about Rochester, which is why you're here to make the levels of obscenity more palatable. And I'm here to issue the fair dues warning, which is to let you know that coming up, we're going to be talking about John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester. I'm not actually really doing the talking. I'm the reader. Uh, My job is to make the poetry of John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, which is frankly very, very rude, alcoholic. You've got awful things happening in these poems. These are not good, beautiful, inspiring poems written by a good, beautiful, inspiring person. These are great poems about the worst that humanity has to offer. So honestly, fair dues, if restoration poetry of a very rude kind is not your thing, skip this one, go to the Next one, uh, which apart from anything else, will actually have Kate back doing her own fair dues warning. That was perfect. You could be a podcaster. Oh, do not, do not tempt me with your podcast ways. No, no, never. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society. Who is that you were just listening to? Well, I'll tell you. That was a little-known writer, Neil Gaiman. I invited Neil onto the podcast to read through some extracts of his most favourite and, frankly, the most smutty poems that Rochester has ever produced, while we will be taking a deeper look at the wildlife of John Wilmot, the second Earl of Rochester. 
I'm also joined by historian Rebecca Radil, who'll be telling us more about Rochester's life. Everything from kidnapping his own wife to war, boozing, smoozing, possibly cruising in the court of King Charles II before it all came to an untimely end and he clapped out with syphilis and alcoholism at the ripe old age of 33. I hope you enjoy this very special episode and I think it's got to win the award for the most obscene words in all of the episodes that we have covered. Enjoy! A Ramble in St. James's Park Much wine had passed with grave discourse of who fucks who and who does worse, such as you usually do hear from those that diet at the bear, when I who still take care to see drunkenness relieved by lechery, went out into St. James's Park to cool my head and fire my heart. But though St. James has the honour on't, tis consecrate to prick and cunt. So, hello, and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets, Rebecca Radil. How are you? I'm good, thank you-ish, I guess. Yes, thank you for having me. There's nobody that I would rather be talking to about our restoration poet extraordinaire, the bad boy of erotic literature, probably one of the baddest, Rochester. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if he is the baddest, you know. I think he's just... Do you know? It's all relative, isn't it? He wrote really good bad poetry. Like, bad as in naughty poetry. Yeah, he absolutely did. But I'm not entirely sure that his actual character and life lived up to the impression that he gave everyone else. Do you think think he was actually a bit of a sensitive little soldier? Oh, God, no. But um, (laughs) I think it it was beneficial to him and also people later on to kind of emphasise this myth of the dirty rape. The myth. Yeah. The man, the myth, Rochester. He is like one of the sort of the bad boys, the great poets. He does have this mystique around him. But I don't actually know very much about him. I know he wrote really rude poems and they're pretty amazing and still shocking by today's standards. But I don't know who he was. Who was he? Where did he come from? So he was born in 1647. And if you know anything about 17th century history, you'll know that that's kind of slap bang in the middle of when shit goes bad. That's during the Civil War. Civil War. It's two years before Charles I is executed. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's born into a really tumultuous time period. But in many ways, he lives a kind of traditional life for a young aristocrat as well. So his father's a Civil War soldier. He's on the Royalist side. He's very, very supportive of the Royalist cause, although not necessarily a close companion of Charles I, the king that was executed. Interesting. But what's interesting for a kind of parallel, I guess, is that the Earl of Rochester's dad was noted as being quite a heavy drinker. Rochester Senior. Rochester Senior was a heavy drinker and he got people on side during battles and his soldiers and his troops, they all loved him because they liked to kind of party hard, I guess, after and before. Well, maybe not before, but after battles and things. So he was a, a really formidable character, but the, the family ancestry goes back quite far. They kind of rose during a war that happened towards the end of the 16th century, early 17th century, which the English call the Irish Rebellion, but I'm pretty sure the Irish would call it more of a civil war because it was the last fight of the century for Irish independence. And Uh Rochester's ancestors were on the English side and they were obviously given lots of land and... Awkward. Yeah. So that's his kind of background. His mum was a, a very, very religious and devout woman. Oh. It was both of their second marriage... So as a kid, he didn't really see his dad that much because he was, you know, fighting and supporting Charles II after Charles I had been beheaded. There was a battle called the Battle of Worcester where Charles II attempted to reclaim his throne. The Earl of Rochester's father, Rochester Senior, was with Charles II during this battle. It was a dismal failure, but it resulted in one of a kind of a a myth-making episode in Charles II's life where he had this daring escape from the parliamentarian side (laughs) and he hid in an oak tree. As you do. 
Yeah. And so when Charles II came back to the throne, he called this Oak Apple Day, this particular day when he managed to escape in disguise. And the Earl of Rochester's father was very much involved in all of that. So that's kind of his family background. So he's born to money then. Little baby Rochester is not going short. They support the royalists. Yes. He's not born to money, though. That's the thing. Oh. They are aristocrats, so they're born to power, privilege, access to the court, all of that, all the kind of trappings that come with that. But they don't actually have that much money. I mean, it's all relative. They have more money than, you know, say, a boatman working on the Thames, but they don't have that much money for an aristocratic family. So it's really important when Rochester matures that he needs to get a pension from the king in order to survive. And that's why he's not really a good prospect for potential brides. We probably should say at this point, his name... His name was Rochester, but that was like his title, wasn't it? His name was actually John. Yeah, it's such a boring, normal name. Sorry to any John's listening. It's a great name. I'm Rebecca. Everyone from the 1980s is called Rebecca. So I feel your pain, but it's a very, given that he's so, you expect him to have a name like Casanova or right? something, but yeah, he's just John. Just John. John Wilmot, <laughs> Earl of Rochester. The second Earl of Rochester. Second. Yeah. So he's born to privilege and access although maybe not as much money as we'd like to think he grows up in this really really turbulent time i'm surprised his mother's really religious considering the smut that he went on to write but maybe maybe a freudian would jump in there and say that's exactly why he did it yeah but do we have a sense of his childhood was he a happy bunny he was just a kind of average john for an aristocrat he was taught at home he had a tutor for a short while then he went to a local grammar school and was taught there then he went to Oxford at the age of, ooh, I don't know, 11 or 12. That doesn't mean he was a prodigy. They just went at that age, at that point in time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and so he did all of that. He had a tutor, a mathematics tutor that was his main like point of contact, I suppose. <laughs> but it wasn't him that influenced him. He also had another tutor that was very much into poetry and the classics. And that's where he got his knowledge of classic literature and interest in poetry and writing but he wasn't great to start with there's lots of examples of him kind of dabbling and just testing out his skills in inverted commas so just a kind of average average childhood for someone brought up during that particular point in time there was nothing to say that he would end up being this really prolific poet of dirty smut (laughs) a lot of smut and his dad died early on, right? Yeah, his dad died in the late 1650s, so before the restoration of the monarchy, which happened in 1660. But in terms of contact with his dad, he didn't really see him all that much. It wasn't a close relationship. Ah. But again, this is not atypical for an aristocrat Mm. at this point in time. They'd often be sent to different homes or go off to study at Oxford and things like that. So yeah, there wasn't so much of a close relationship there, but it was an important relationship in the sense that Charles II was very familiar with and friendly with John's dad. So there was a kind of loyalty to Rochester Jr. as a consequence of that, which worked in Rochester's favour. Did like little baby Rochester know Charles II then growing up? Had he met him? Did he know him? Oh, no, he wouldn't have met him because right. Charles was pretty much in exile most of the time, except for the Battle of Worcester, because Oliver Cromwell was in charge for most of the 1650s, not all, but yeah, he wouldn't have known him. There would have been correspondence. He would have been aware of things going on in court, but we also have to remember how young Rochester is compared to Charles II. They're Mm. not contemporaries. There's a generation between the pair. What's the age difference? I always thought that they were of a similar age. That's wrong. Okay. Yeah, they're not. So Charles was born in 1630, Rochester 1647. So there's 17 years between them. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a difference. Particularly significant when one of them is in the teenage years and the other one's kind of pushing 30. Yes, it would be. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting though, isn't it? Like his dad dies and then he's got this kind of older daddy figure to look up to in Charles II, daddy issues. (laughs) Yeah, daddy issues and seeing Charles as a father figure, but then also Charles kind of looking upon Rochester as not necessarily a son, but someone he was responsible for. That's how he felt. But what's interesting as well for Rochester, so we get Charles II coming to the throne in 1660. Rochester's still very young, 13 in 1660. 
but he's surrounded by older men. I mean, they're not necessarily mature men, but the court wits, as they would later be known, are mostly about a decade older than him. And he's kind of this snappy little upstart kid that's doing more than them and trying to be funnier than them. And when does he start writing this really naughty, dirty poetry, plays. But you said that he sort of started experimenting a bit younger. And I love the thought that there's just some like really crap, dirty limericks by him that didn't really work from, like when he was a teenager. <laughs> but when does his writing sort of start? When does his, when his writing career take off? Well, the poems that we mostly associate with him and the ones that are the best don't really happen until the very late 1660s early to mid 1670s. But there's quite a few things that happen in his life that I think have a bearing on the character of Rochester after the restoration of Charles II. He was very young, as I've already said, but as someone that didn't have that much money, he was granted 500 pounds a year from Charles II. He needed to marry and he needed to marry well. Ah. He needed to marry someone with money. And one of the biggest prizes as he became more mature, so around 17, 18 years of age, was this young girl, she was about 15, so she's about two years younger than him, a young girl called Elizabeth Mallet, who was known as the great beauty of the North. She was this heiress that had mm. buckets and buckets of money that would be coming her way. But because she was so wealthy and quite pretty, there were loads of young aristocrats kind of floating around her and wanting to bag her, so to speak. And Rochester wasn't the best prospect for her because he didn't have much money. But what he did do in 1665 was basically kidnap her. <laughs> he abducted her. Oh, now hang on a minute, John. That's a bit scallywaggy. You can't be kidnapping a 15-year-old because you want her money. Yeah, it's not great, is it? I mean, he was 17. There's an age gap there. They're both children, I think. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah. I don't condone kidnapping people. That's not a good thing to do. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's bad. Yeah, it's not good. But... He made an impression on her and um, she was rescued and he was sent to the tower as a consequence. That would make an impression on you. <laughs> but you can imagine because he was, you know, supposedly, I mean, who knows for sure, looking at the pictures of him, the paintings, it doesn't really fill you with mm. confidence, but he was supposed to be quite handsome. But I just think if you look at a picture of anyone from the late 17th century, they've got these god-awful periwigs on it's really hard to actually see that like oh okay maybe objectively he was I don't know but supposedly he was obviously we know he was sharp he was witty it's a pretty lethal combination yeah they got on well and they ended up marrying in the end after a you know a year or so she chose to marry him against other people's wishes but yeah so he sent to the tower and in order to prove himself and to prove that you know he's not all bad you know he shouldn't just be thought of as this guy that kidnaps people. He signs up to be part of the Second Anglo-Dutch War and he goes on this mission to Bergen in Norway slash Denmark. It was one kingdom at that point in time. Well, two kingdoms, one king. He goes on this mission to Bergen with a couple of people that he befriended, some other young aristocrats that were taken on as, they were just going for adventure basically. But they made a promise to one another and this is what Rochester says in one of his letters. They made a promise that should one of them die, they'd come back to the living ones to prove that there was life after death. And during the battle that ensued in Bergen, one of them did die. He had a cannonball fired, which got him, and he never returned to Rochester. And this is part of the reason, I think, that Rochester started to question his faith and have kind of atheist leanings afterwards, which plays into his later kind of nihilistic approach to life, I think. Wow. So he's been through a lot. He lost his dad young. He's growing up during a civil war, which is turbulent, like Brexit on steroids, for fuck's sake. He's kidnapped somebody. What happened to him in the tower, by the way? He wasn't tortured or anything, was he? What happened to him there? Oh, no, they weren't tortured, these aristocrats. Not at this point in time. It's, oh, it was no. fairly nice, the accommodation. He was just he was just there. Right. He wasn't imprisoned in the way that we would think of it. It wasn't a jail or anything. It was just, he was just sent to live in a fairly nice castle in the middle of London for a bit that he just couldn't leave. But he has been in jail. He's kidnapped someone. He gets married. I think that's still quite young, like 17, even by the standards of the day, I think is still quite young. I think he would have been about 19 when he married eventually. Okay, okay. And then he goes away to war and his mate gets done in by a cannonball. There's quite a lot of trauma here, isn't there? 
Yes, it is quite a lot of trauma in general standards, but in terms of the standards of the day, it's not unusual because this was a really brutal time given there was the civil wars going on, major naval battles going on with the Dutch. Lots of people were being killed. Lots of people were having short lives. Was he famous at this point? Did he get famous for kidnapping his Miss Mallet? And did he get famous for being in the war? Yeah, he was famous for the kidnapping, famous in terms of in certain circles, like London circles. Samuel Pepys talks about it in his diary. For his antics during the war, he was quite heroic during another battle in 1666. Mm. While he was under fire, he went from one ship to another ship in a small boat to pass a message on, and he was applauded within court for those actions. But fame at this point in time, he was someone that people probably were noticing, but he was just famous within certain circles. And if we think of like some of his later poems, like A Satire Against Reason and Mankind, for example, which I think we can listen to a bit here. Were I, who to my cost already am one of those strange prodigious creatures, man, a spirit, free to choose, for mine own share what case of flesh and blood I pleased to wear, I'd be a dog, a monkey, or a bear or anything but that vain animal who is so proud of being rational. For wits are treated just like common whores. First they're enjoyed and then kicked out of doors. The pleasure past, a threatening doubt remains that frights the enjoyer with succeeding pains. Women and men of wit are dangerous tools and ever fatal. To admiring fools. Was that influenced by these early events, do you think? I know it's difficult to say without him being here to go, John, why did you write this? Why did you write it? But do you think that was formed by these earlier events in his life? I think it's definitely a couple of factors at work behind this particular poem. I think, yes, definitely his life experiences. This was an age where, in general, people were questioning everything. Some people thought that, you know, they were living in the last age, that Armageddon was on its way. I think that's definitely part of it. But also, I think it's important to note the work of people like Thomas Hobbes, who'd written his tract Leviathan in 1651, I think it was. And it was a major piece of political philosophy, I guess. It explored human nature in a slightly different way. It, it put forward the idea that man was essentially man and men and women I should say but man in the in the tract were essentially selfish and that was their kind of core state and without good governance the, their lives would be and I quote from Hobbes nasty brutish and short so people were absorbing these ideas and thinking about human nature and thinking about their own behavior and that's why, why when we see a satire against reason and mankind He's talking about animals because he's likening humans to animals because humans aren't any more exceptional than an animal in his view. So he says things like, were I who to my cost already am a strange, prodigious creature man. But then he says he'd rather be an animal because they're not as vain as, as men. But then he goes on in the poem to talk. It's kind of a rant in a way, but it's really a really well-written rant. It's probably one of my favourite poems of his. He goes on to talk about court wits. Now, the notion of a court wit had developed during his lifetime, during the 1660s and 1670s, they were celebrated and they began to be more celebrated. So people like him, people like the Duke of Buckingham, people like George Etheridge, the playwright as well. But he says here that wits are treated just like common whores. First they're enjoyed and then they're kicked out of doors. So it's quite bitter. You know, they love him, but then they're, you know, they're not bothered about him afterwards. So it's a really good poem and it's a really good expression of Hobbesian views and thinking. Because it is easy to forget, like, when you read through his verse, obviously the one that everyone goes to is you want to find, like, the really, really rude ones, and we'll get to those in a sec. But it's easy to sort of forget that there was a really sharp, astute philosophical mind at work here. And I wonder if that kind of plays into why he talks about sex as much as he does, this idea that we're animals and that he's exploring this very animal-like instinct that we all have. He did live the life of a Hobbesian creature. And that's why lots of people were thinking of him as an atheist. Obviously, atheism 
in the 17th century is different to atheism today. It was more a rejection of accepted beliefs rather than thinking, oh, there is no God. But religious scholars will probably disagree with me. But, you know, that's my view anyway. So he's kind of living that life. And there's lots of episodes in his life that are quite bizarre. But if you think of him as being a person that lives in the moment, they make a bit more sense. You know, he gets into fights. There was one incident where he's with George Etheridge and a couple of other people. And they're off kind of drinking in the woods somewhere or other. And they're antagonizing someone by throwing them in a blanket, whatever that means. I mean, probably beating them up slightly. And someone intervenes and in order to distract them, he says, oh, I will take you to see the fairest maiden in the village. So he walks into a house, which is the constable's house, thinking, you know, haha, we've tricked them, they'll be arrested. But the constable comes out and a massive fight ensues, which is kind of triggered by the Earl of Rochester being a bit hot-headed and drawing his sword when he didn't need to do it. But it results in his friend being killed and the rest of the group doing a runner. So it doesn't really put him in the best light, episodes like that. Do you know what? It is difficult Like when you are looking at his life. And then I feel kind of guilty because... But then everyone does this, is that I can't help but like the guy... I've got such an admiration for him. And I think that if he was around today, I probably would shag him. But I'm also aware that he's a bit of a shit. <laughs> he's like, like, who does that? Who ends up with their mate getting killed on a night out because you had to try and bag a stranger and beat them up a bit? That's weird. And he wasn't faithful at all to his wife, was he? Like, not even a little bit, not even pretending to be faithful. No, he wasn't. But I don't think we can judge that because no one was. Wives weren't faithful. She was, but most aristocratic wives are having their affairs left, right and centre, literally and figuratively. But then not all husbands wrote extremely graphic poems like An Imperfect Enjoyment about banging his mistress and not being able to keep it up. I know. And that poem's amazing. It is. And you know what? We've got it being read here. Naked she lay, clasped in my longing arms. I filled with love and she all over charms, both equally inspired with eager fire, melting through kindness, flaming in desire, with arms, legs, lips close clinging to embrace, she clips me to her breast and sucks me to her face. Her nimble tongue loves lesser lightning, played within my mouth and to my thoughts, conveyed swift orders that I should prepare to throw the all-dissolving thunderbolt below. My fluttering soul, sprung with the pointed kiss, hangs hovering o'er her balmy brinks of bliss. But whilst her busy hand would guide that part which should convey my soul up to her heart, in liquid raptures I dissolve all o'er, melt into sperm and spend at every pore. A touch from any part of her had dunt, her hand, her foot. Her very looks a cunt, smiling she chides in a kind, murmuring noise, and from her body wipes the clammy joys. When, with a thousand kisses, wondering o'er oh, my panting bosom, is there then no more? she cries. All this to love and rapture's due, must we not pay a debt to pleasure too? It's so honest, isn't it? I think that's what makes you warm to him because, I mean, he's talking about premature ejaculation in this really long, beautifully written poem. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and it's just like the skill of this man. And he's just decided he could have written about like love and gods and all, you know, like the amazing things that bind humans together. And he's turned it on. He's going, I'm going to write about my dick. And I do really admire him for that. <laughs> this is the thing that binds humans together, literally. True, I mean, when he says, he's, he's looking at this woman, he's thinking, oh my God, she's just amazing. And then he's just like, oh, oops. Where he says things like, a touch from any part of her had done it, her hand, her foot, her very looks a cunt. It's just... It's so visceral. He can't help himself. He's just too excited. Then he's kind of feeling really awful and bad about things. <laughs> and it's that bit as well, when she turns around and she says, is there no more? It's like, oh, my God, like, we all relate to that. <laughs> and, like, now 
know, like we all talk about like the orgasm gap, you know, and about like women don't get as many orgasms as men and like there's this big push to be like, you know, if, if you're having sex and you haven't had an orgasm, don't just be satisfied with that. Ask for an orgasm. And there he is. I mean, he's not talking about the orgasm gap, but he's identifying that his partner is sexually unsatisfied because he came too quick, like hundreds of years ago. He is doing that. And then also, sure, listeners to this podcast will have heard this already, but up until fairly recently, historically speaking, an orgasm was needed to facilitate pregnancy in people's minds. That was the belief. So Mm. it was something that had to happen. Like, I'm not saying with every sexual encounter that he was having, he was trying to get people pregnant. He certainly wasn't. But there was an understanding of it. And there was also, you find lots of references in his work to female pleasure. He talks about frigging. There's one poem about the satire on dildos. It's called Signor Dildo. And it's talking about all the ladies in court being fascinated by this Italian figure that's come to town to you know, take care of them. One of the interesting things about Signor Dildo, which is a funny poem to read, is that it was brought into another episode where Rochester was thrown out of court. So basically he'd written this poem and he was supposed to hand this poem to Charles II to read. And Charles would have thought, ah, ha, 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 you know, this is great fun, what a funny poem. But he accidentally, instead of handing him the poem Signor Dildo, he handed him a poem called A Satire on Charles II. Pause to listen. Thank you, Neil Gaiman. (laughs) In the Isle of Britain, long since famous, grown for breeding the best cunts in Christendom, there reigns, and oh, long may he reign and thrive, the easiest king and best-bred man alive. His scepter and his prick are of a length and she may sway the one who plays with the other and make him little wiser than his brother. Poor prince, thy prick, like thy buffoons at court, will govern thee because it makes thee sport. For though in her he settles well his tasks, yet his dull, graceless bollocks hang an arse. This you'd believe had I but time to tell ye the pains it cost a poor laborious Nelly whilst she employs hands, fingers, mouth, and thighs ere she can raise the member she enjoys. Like, if somebody who is much younger than you, and you're the king, you are the king, and this kind of upstart courtier hands you that, it's like, <laughs> funny joke, I'd be pissed. Yeah, I'm sure he was, but... Charles was quite self-deprecating and he also had to make a show of being pissed off. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's got one of my favourite things. It's kind of my earworm poetic phrase is the final lines of this poem where he says, all monarchs I hate and the thrones they sit on from the Hector of France to the Cully of Britain. That is gorgeous, isn't it? It's just perfect. I love it. I often think about it when I'm really depressed about politics. It's just a, a perfect two lines. But yeah, so he handed in his poem, other lines in this, which you will have heard are, his scepter and his prick are of a length and she may sway the one who plays with the other. And that was a very potent thing to say. He's basically insinuating that, well not insinuating, he's saying that the king is being influenced by external people, women, and they are having an influence on policy. Now, very few people could actually get away with saying that directly to the king. Mm. And I think that's why he sits in this really special place with regards to poetry and literature during this point in time, because he is an aristocrat. He's he's in the gang, but he's writing as though he's an outsider. So he's getting away with things that outsiders just would not get away with. And it's thanks to Rochester that we know King Charles II had an enormous penis. Yes, it is. Although how Rochester has seen it, I'm sure he has seen it, actually. He was a gentleman of the bedchamber. I'll be back with Rebecca and Neil and Rochester after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. If my reading of this is correct, they did share mistresses. I don't know if like it was sort of swapping, but Nell Gwynn was one of Rochester's mistresses and certainly one of Charlie Boy's favourites. Yeah, Nell Gwynn wasn't his mistress, but they were close contacts. Looking at the letters from Nell Gwynn, I actually would argue that Rochester acted in a way that was more like a pimp than a lover or even a friend. So he writes a letter to Nell Gwynn telling her that she shouldn't be offended by the king having other mistresses. She should never show jealousy, but please him with hand, mouth and whatever else she can to stay in his good books. And that doesn't sound like an equal relationship there. It doesn't know. It doesn't sound like a lover, does it? He definitely wasn't her lover. I think there are ways of reading that that could be a friendship, Mm. but there are also ways of reading that that could be slightly darker as well. Rochester's views on fidelity anyway, he wrote about that. Yeah, against constancy. And we can listen to a bit of that now. Tell me no more of constancy, the frivolous pretense of cold age, narrow jealousy, disease and want of sense. Let duller fools on whom kind chance some easy heart has thrown, despairing higher to advance, be kind to one alone old men and weak, whose idle flame their own defects discovers, since changing can but spread their shame, ought to be constant lovers. Again, this is where we get this Hobbesian idea of living in the moment. He's talking about, you know, what's the point in holding out for someone else? What's the point in being loyal? We've only got this moment. It almost sounds kind of like the flea by John Donne. It's got that same kind of sense. We need to live in the moment and mingle our liquids together. Sexy. (laughs) It's a really good poem to express that idea when it comes to sexuality and sex and things, that that's what he's talking about. He's seeing sex through a Hobbesian lens. Do we have any sense of what his poor wife was doing during all this? I mean, it's one thing like, you know, you read his poems and you're like, yeah, John, we are all animals and we should all live in the moment. And we should, you know, like celebrate the universal truths of sex that bind us all together. And like, you know, you get really like, yeah, this is amazing, Rochester. And then I think about his wife at home. Like, what the fuck was she making of all of this? (laughs) She wrote poetry herself, actually. Did she? Was it just like, my husband is a massive dick by (laughs) Mrs. Rochester? (laughs) (laughs) She wrote poetry. And obviously it's not great hearing all these stories about her husband. She'll know that husbands have mistresses at this point in time. That's to be expected. What they're not supposed to be doing is, as you said before, writing all this poetry and basically talking about all the affairs they're having, explicit about their affairs with women, implicit, and there are hints of affairs with men as well. So in today's terms, he would probably be thought of as a bisexual. Obviously, that term didn't exist then, but I think that's something we should think about Mm. as well with regards to Rochester. He often talks about... Buggering his page. Yeah, his soft, sweet page that will do the trick worth a thousand wenches or something, whatever the quote was. So I think that's something to bear in mind as well. But she lived in the country for the majority of the time. She rarely entered London, unless there was a big court event or something. Good thing too. And I think Rochester was a different man in the country to the man that he was in London as well. He was reported to have said that by the time he'd passed Brentwood, the devil had entered him. So London's this place where he becomes his best and worst self. Mm. So poor Elizabeth. Tell me about his relationship with the actress Elizabeth Barry, because that's quite a famous relationship. It is. So actresses at this point in time were newly allowed to be on the stage, which was nice. And Elizabeth Barry was a woman that attempted to make it as an actress, but wasn't great to start with. And so the story goes that Rochester had taken a wager that he could turn her into the greatest actress of the age. 
I think that really gives him far too much credit for her talent. She did emerge as the greatest actress of that age. And I'm saying actress, I know people would prefer the term actor nowadays, but um, they used actress at that point in time. And they had a really strong and loving relationship, which resulted in a child as well. And I think we need to remember that as well. So we have the poet Rochester, but then we also have the Rochester that sends letters to his lover, Elizabeth Barry. In one of these letters, he says, anger, spleen, revenge and shame are not yet so powerful with me as to make me disown this great truth that I love you above all things in the world. Now, who wouldn't want to receive a letter like that? That's very sweet. You know, there was a real man behind the dirty poetry and the bravado that I think sometimes gets lost in this mythology that we like to celebrate. Was Elizabeth Barry one of his women that he wrote about on The Women About Town, which we can listen to a bit of now? They carry a fate which no man can oppose, the loss of his heart and the fall of his nose. Should he dully resist, yet would each take upon her to beseech him to do it and engage him in honour. O ye merciful powers who of mortals take care, make the women more modest, more sound, or less fair. Is it just that with death cruel love should conspire, and our tarses be burnt by our hearts taking fire? There's an end of communion if humble believers must be damned in the cup like unworthy receivers. On the Women About Town is this really, you know, nasty poem. He doesn't seem to like women very much there. His poetry is riddled with misogyny. It's everywhere. It's, mm. you know, there is a, a reading of his poetry as a feminist that would just, you know, you just want to put him in the bin. But you can't help but like him because he's also funny, <laughs> um, which is a really lethal mix, I think. And really dirty as well. So one mm. of his most notorious poems, to my mind, is a poem called The Ramble in St. James's Park. I mean, that's quite shocking, isn't it? Even by today's standards. Yeah, really, really shocking in the way, you know, in the poem he talks about the shrubbery in St. James's Park fucking the sky. I mean, that really gives you an insight into his mind. <laughs> How do you look around a garden and think, oh, OK, that's the most obvious analogy to make. So... Yeah, it's really dirty, the poem, but it's also very much of a time and a place. And the rhyming doesn't translate in the 21st century because the way we speak has changed. One thing that was said about Shakespeare was that he was a writer for all time. And I think Rochester is very much a writer of his time in contrast to that. And again, it's that thing of like, I can read this and I know that it's like, he hates women in particular, sex workers, it seems to be here when he's talking about lewd cunts coming home and being gorged on a vast meal of slime and all these really visceral stuff. I think, yes, his work is absolutely chock full of smut and also misogyny. But behind that, I think it's really important to remember that he's writing these poems So he might be wanting to portray a certain image of himself. And by God, he'd lived up to it on multiple occasions. He confessed to a clergyman that he'd been drunk continuously for five years. But equally, the very fact that these poems exist, and there are quite a few of them, shows us that actually he was going back to his country residence for long periods of time, sitting and thinking and reworking drafts and thinking about how to put these things together. So there's two different men here that are in existence. And then when it comes to women as well, we've spoken about that letter that he sent to Nell Gwynn, which one reading could just be a friendship letter. But also in his correspondence, he's got a close friend called Henry Saville, his kind of partner in arms. They're both as dirty as each other. It's just Saville doesn't really have the literary talent of Rochester. And in 1678, Savile's in a well-known sweat house. Now, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with sweat houses. Enlighten us, Rebecca. Places where people with venereal disease would go to be fumigated with mercury. There was a famous sweat house or a a well-known sweat house during the Restoration period. And I love the name of it, called Madame Four Chords. And it was on Leather Lane in Clerkenwell. Leather Lane still exists. And I used to walk up and down and think, oh, I wonder which building it was. That's just me being weird. A letter is written to Rochester from Savile while he's staying in this sweat house. And he says, 
I confess I wonder at myself the mass of mercury that has gone down my throat in seven months, but should wonder yet more were it not for Mrs. Roberts. What she has endured would make a damned soul fall a-laughing at his lesser pains. It is so far beyond description or belief. Now, Savile's showing that he's caring for and he's concerned about Mrs. Roberts. Mm. This Mrs. Roberts is Jane Roberts, who is Rochester's second known mistress alongside Elizabeth Barry. Jane Roberts is interesting because she was also a mistress to Charles II. Uh So we know she's got venereal disease. We know she's been shagging Rochester. We know she's been shagging the king as well. I think it's amazing that King Charles II did not contract venereal disease. She died as well shortly after. We do have to talk about the sad demise of Rochester because you've you've just got this like rock star poet. You know, he's a war hero. He's an aristocrat. He kind of grew up in not, you know, sort of like faded aristocracy. He writes the most obscene verses. He's running around London like a dog with two dicks and he gets thrown out of the court of the king and he's just like epic. So, of course, he dies young. Of course he does. He was never going to become an old man, right? Or am I, am I reading that wrong? No, I mean, some of them did. Some of them moved on after, you know, this is a very unique period of time, the 1660 to around 1680, when Rochester was in his adulthood. It was a time where you see imaginings of his persona on stage in restoration comedy. So you see plays by Etheridge and Afra Ben and John Dryden, all creating this rake character which is really quite unique at this point in time in that they're very sexual very rough about their sexuality as well and it's very explicit how they're using people so you've got this myth making in place but the rake on stage never really felt the consequences of his actions whereas the real life rakes Rochester who was the inspiration for many of these characters were feeling the consequences of sleeping around. He was suffering from venereal disease. He had alcohol issues as well. Was it syphilis or was it just a bit of everything? Well, we don't know for sure. He certainly wasn't sure what it was that was wrong with him, but he did write a letter in 1667 and described his symptoms. And he said, my pissing of blood, Dr. Weatherly says, is nothing. My eyes are almost out, but that, he says, will not do me much harm. Oh, dear. That's bleak, isn't it? That's not nice, is it? That's definitely a sick day. (laughs) So he's pissing blood. He's not able to see very well. That could be chronic alcoholism as well, couldn't it? It could. It absolutely could. It's also very likely that it was syphilis or it could have been gonorrhea. But with the eyes going, that sounds like late stage syphilis, doesn't it, that it could be? Yeah, and there was a dramatisation of the Earl of Rochester's life in the early noughties and Johnny Depp. I remember it well. Nicer times. Um, (laughs) Played the character of Rochester and within the film he wore a prosthetic nose Mm. because obviously one of the things that happens with syphilis is that your nose kind of implodes, it dissolves in your face. Yeah. And it wasn't unusual for people to be walking around London with prosthetic noses. Because venereal disease was a newish disease, if you think about all of history ever, it was spreading around England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, the same as it was around Europe, probably from around the mid 16th century onwards. And it's not one really that you can avoid unless you avoid having sex, which people didn't. So I think it probably was gonorrhea or syphilis that he was suffering from, as well as alcoholism. It would make sense. It would make sense as well with his weird behaviour sometimes. Your sanity is not always there when you have syphilis. It affects your brain. So he got worse and he got worse. He made a conversion towards the end of his life, away from atheism, back to the church again. Oh, did he? (laughs) Yeah. And he was only 33, wasn't he? 33. All of that huge life in such a short space of time. Yes, a massive life with a huge legacy. And within weeks of him dying, his poetry was being published within weeks. Wow. It was already known, but it was being published in an anthology and people were lapping it up. And then you get people like Afra Ben writing eulogies about Rochester, how he was the best of men and this fascinating creature. She writes, think how he loved and written, sighed and spoke, recall his mien, his fashion and his look. By what dear arts the soul did he surprise, soft as his voice and charming as his eyes. You know, this is real affection for this character that's passed away. 
prematurely, but we know that when people die young, their mythology starts pretty much straight away and it Mm. makes them more notable in lots of ways. Rebecca, I could sit and listen to you talk about Rochester for forever and ever and ever, but I'm not allowed to do that. So my final question to you after this stratospheric juggernaut life is, what do you think Rochester's legacy is? What's he left us with? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Syphilis. What's his legacy? His legacy is checkered because... He was celebrated and his poetry was much sought after after he died. And it's no accident that there are over 200 poems that have been misattributed to him. And most of those poems are dirty poems that were written in the early 18th century. So he was kind of the go-to dirty poet for a long while. And then his poetry, because it's full of fuck, cunt, frig, all the rest of it, all these words that the Victorians didn't quite like. No, they did not. (laughs) And people in the early 20th century didn't quite like as well. He fell off the radar. Mm. We see the same man being born again. We see him in the mythology of figures like Lord Byron. We see that kind of figure in the 1960s rock stars, this nihilistic life where poetry or songwriting is part of the culture of drinking and doing drugs and things. We see it in the late 1990s as well with gang culture and rap, the West Coast and the East Coast, these rivalries, because there was lots of rivalries in the 17th century between different poetic factions where they'd actually be beating people up. We see that again. And I just think he's a type, but he's almost the first of that type. Oh, Rebecca, you have been amazing to talk to. And you've done nothing to help reduce my Rochester crush, to be completely honest. (laughs) But if people want to know more about... Look at his portrait. Look at his portrait (laughs) and think he had syphilis, Kate. Just fucking behave yourself. Yeah. Uh, But if people want to know more about you and more about your work, where can they find you? I wouldn't follow me on Twitter because I'm annoying, but you can (laughs) listen to me... You can listen to my podcast, which is called Killing Time, and it's about historical crimes and gory deaths and things. Um, yeah, I mean, who likes plugging themselves, Kate? That's a really horrible thing to do. Rochester did. He would have plugged himself and several other people too. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me today. You've been absolutely amazing. And thank you to our narrator. You have been spectacular. I hope that you enjoyed this very special episode on Rochester, the Restoration's filthiest poet, and a huge thanks to Rebecca and Neil for making it happen. And if you enjoy what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe. Honestly, we would love to know what you think of this episode. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sounds. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.